0: i don't
1: like being recorded i'm out
0: this episode is a paid promotion of
2: the plastic pills youtube channel yes we're we're doing a cross promotional episode like the good like the good content producers we are trying to be
1: i feel like we're selling out i think plastic pills is fine on his own
2: we're selling out to the <laughs> we're, the Plastic Pills podcast to selling out to the Plastic Pills YouTube channel. How does that work? It's kind of incestuous. Uh,
0: we're selling us out to me? No, me out to us? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I'm feeling very used right now. Very vulnerable. Anyway, yeah, so, if, you're, so. if
0: you're wondering what we're talking about, the Plastic Pills YouTube channel, not to be confused with the Plastic Pills podcast has finished and pre-released a documentary on Project Cybersyn and the CIA/military slash coup of Allende's government in Chile
2: 1973 correct and I happen to be of Chilean descent even though I knew I knew very little I learned a lot by watching Pills's video which was excellent uh, got a sneak preview of it uh last week and then it, i think there was still an introduction that was added that i did watch earlier today yes so very well done good show sir
1: and i'm not chilean but my ancestors were from somewhere quite chilly so cold
0: well you're you're definitely gonna chill the atmosphere with puns like that bro but anyway Uh, We've rallied the troops here to discuss not just Cyberson, we'll do a bit of that, but also Latin American politics a little more broadly, because I know nothing about it, though. It it does often get thrown around by leftists as, I don't know, sometimes some magical land where there is an actual left in, in contrast to the Anglosphere. And I wanted to discuss today the extent to which that's true, or whether it's a sort of fetish spawned by our own political impotence. Anyway, uh, Victor, Chilean-Canadian, as you just said. Matt, I guess, lived in Mexico for a few years at our guest today. uh, You know her as our Foucault correspondent, but she's both a political theorist and a Mexican with first-hand experience of politics there and now politics here. Here is Canada. Uh, so thanks for joining the call, Miriam, and I hope you can help us out with this reality check. First question, as I guess we're talking pre-recording, we know how Victor eschews the term Latinx, but to Mirian, should we uh, be using that as the, as the PC descriptor here?
3: I, I don't know why you will take issue with that. Honestly, I think it's important to understand from a Latin American perspective, the fact that um, like women and these minorities are very harshly and violently marginalized in the region. So I think it's somehow of an important kind of battle, I guess, that's waged and won in like the symbolic linguistic like realm, I guess. I don't know, like uh, I really don't have a strong Feelings about it. I I think I will take more issue with the whole putting a very broad region into one single kind of word. Like it's such a big region. So I will say that it's just very on specific, tries to highlight kind of the commonalities, which there are, of course. But I think it also raises the different experiences of like a very vast like portion of land
2: so it's like uh so it's kind of like when you just like well to do a do a video about chile and then you're like well i'll invite marion because she's mexican
0: (laughs) yeah it's exactly like that them, the kind Well, of... look, in my defense, uh, the relationship between American I, I, mining companies say, and uh, Chilean yeah. miners in the 70s is hardly different from the relationship between Canadian mining companies and Mexican miners today. So the polarity of our shared hemisphere has not changed all that much in the last 50 years, unfortunately, despite the fact that I know that Chile and Mexico, as you point out, are geographically and culturally
2: distinct. So thank you yeah, very much. I, for I, I'll also just say I'm, I'm not I don't really like the term Latinx very much. I mean, but I'm not going to get like angry about it if people. Like want to use it but it just it feels very forced and performative and it feels like it was just invented by like woke white people
1: is it a gender Is a gender pronoun right because latino and latina yeah. have gender connotations so x i don't know i would like to just speak up on behalf of the logicians and mathematicians who use variables on a regular basis and don't appreciate their tools being appropriated for your politically correct ends yeah exactly i'm just kidding
4: I think there is something that unites Latin America as a region, though, Uh, and I learned this watching a lot of Michael Bay movies, and it's that (laughs) the minute you go immediately south of the Rio Grande, there's this kind of yellow orangish hue that just overtakes you. And having lived in the country for several years, I can testify to the existence of this orange hue that kind of colors everything, and I know that this carries on all the way down to the Falkland Islands, and then stops abruptly, and things go back to normal.
0: I saw Sicario also and it was very uh orange.
3: <laughs> um, no. Like I don't know. Mexico City has very shitty air quality and it does get like very weird color sometimes. But no, of course it's not as bad. Uh but why would you take issue with the Latin I well, I don't know if we wanna dwell into this, but I just wanna hear Victor's opinion on why you don't like you don't like the term.
2: I just don't I just think it just feels forced. It feels like invented by I don't know if there's a need. I mean, I also think that the Spanish language is, is you know, there's a masculine and feminine in the language. And it's just, I don't know, it's like, it's it's just weird. It just feels weird. And it, it feels like it was invented by non-Spanish speakers, to be honest.
3: But I think that's a problem, right? Like, it's so much easier to be gender neutral when you are an English speaker than when you are a Spanish speaker. So I guess that's why, like, there's, a lot, there's also a big fight, honestly, that I'm aware of, at least in Mexico, between, like... Um, Trying to use more gender-neutral like uh, language, and precisely some of the people, kind of what Eric said, like uh, some of the people that resist trying to be more inclusive, like say that it's not grammatically correct or that you are like transforming the spelling and stuff. They are very anti. Like sorry, they usually quote the academy of spanish language which is kind mm. of a colonial institution so right. it's very interesting how this rests on like very like the, the, this kind of like powers right uh the truth is like is 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 a very open debate that i see like even people like for example me as a spanish speaker uh like i find it difficult to include it on an everyday like basis when speaking spanish i don't have trouble using it in english because it kind of like i don't know as you said it kind of feels like like anglo in english term in (laughs) spanish is more difficult but i also don't like the whole like just using masculine to name everyone you know, like yeah. in this context, I will have not any like not trouble because most of you are guys. But if it was, the gender was like reversed, I will not like to name everyone as male when the majority will be female. And I, I don't know. There is a whole debate there.
2: I I think I th- I will I will just say, but like not to dwell on this too much. That uh, as generally my opinion about this is, um, I was kind of talking about the the statue issue the other day with a friend of mine. We're like, should they take down the statues of people or whatever? I feel similar about the statues as I do about Latinx and that like ultimately I think people who are like get very emotionally attached to like one side or the other about these debates is just kind of like stupid. It's like ultimately like I just don't care. So like so like I'll I'll say that like I don't like Latinx, but ultimately like to have a strong opinion to be like I really don't like it and to get angry like that would be so stupid too. Right. It would be so stupid to be like I hate it and it's ruining the language like who cares like like spend your time on something else like i don't know or like we're gonna take down the, the dundas sign in toronto which because it's like a because i guess they were involved in the residential schools that affected indigenous people like how about just spend the money that you have to spend on taking down those signs and just get, and how about fix the water systems or, or contribute that money to the water to like just like this is all symbolic nonsense and, and as like a, a soulless liberal globalist who doesn't believe in anything sentimental i think this is all just a waste of time who gives a fuck there you have it
0: that sounds like something an anglophone would say sorry (laughs) sorry angle x phone
1: Uh, a latino perspective
0: Well, that is a Latino perspective, but now we're damned to offend either way. So maybe we should just wrap it, or just say Latin American. How about
1: it? or Latin? It's the or masculine plural. That's the problem. You have to you refer to everybody in yeah. the masculine plural, even if it's a mixed group. So it's seen that's, as like the male gendering, dominating. Also, there are, women, about, oh. there are more
3: women. There are more women in Latin America than men. That's also like.
1: Oh, there you just go. It should number. actually just switch it <laughs> to make the female Latinas if for mixed groups. Yeah. That's what they should do.
3: That's what I advocate for. like Yeah,
0: 1,500 some odd years with one. We'll just do 1,500 years with the you other. You could also just
2: say Latin. Like, you don't even need... the Like, that's the other thing. It's like, you don't even need the word Latinx. Like, like this X thing. I also don't like this... Well, then I'm going to
1: be confused. Are you talking about Thomas Aquinas? Like, he's dead for hundreds of years. Why, Latin? Who the fuck right, is that? Right. They don't exist. Yeah. Are you, sorry, St. Augustine is in the conversation now? All
2: right, all right.
1: Do you, right. Do you think the French are having this debate? Because they can't even add
0: an, an X to the end of the third person plural. <laughs> It'd be exla. Like Anyway, anyway, we will move on. We will move on. So, to those of you who did watch the upcoming feature... I'm trying to do this in the least uncomfortable way because I actually hate talking about my own work, but maybe
2: uh did you learn anything from it? Yeah, so I didn't know much about Cybersyn as being kind of like a cybernetic system that that was designed to try to take like take into account the inputs and outputs of the economy and production and different things that they tried to automate the economy. I didn't know the details about that story. I didn't really know much about um beer stafford beer the like the the british cybernetics professor or whatever who was brought in as a consultant to try to design the system so i learned uh all about that stuff and i think there's also some some like favorable economic numbers i think maybe i didn't know about that that initially when allende took rule the economy like economic numbers were improving um so yeah but like otherwise i just thought that it was uh really like well produced and and a a compellingly presented story um but yeah but i would say like the whole cyber the whole uh, um sin story i didn't know much about that um and yeah people i feel like as far as I i can remember talking to my family and my cousins in chile i don't ever recall that coming up in our conversations about that so that was interesting
1: yeah it happened in a flash right like 71 to 73 and then it was done but it was the most amazing thing (laughs) to happen.
0: By the time the coup happened, Cyberson I think was connected to somewhere around uh, 200 factories,
1: which were of course state owned. That's crazy.
0: Um, It kept track of a bunch of different things, including like the inputs at the factory, what was coming out of the factory, uh, absentees, like for for who was working there, uh, how often, so they were keeping track of uh, labor numbers. And yeah, the idea was that if you have a national a national economy, shouldn't be run by a bunch of bureaucrats uh, because it would be too inefficient. And also the shape of Chile comes into play here because it's extremely long. I think the longest and thinnest country in the world. So uh, they basically had four mainframe computers in the country, and one of the
1: computers was uh, used for this. Victor did you know about Allende before or did you know
2: Oh who- I knew about Allende I mean I knew the story details. about Allende and the coup and I think I said in a, in I think when I went on to uh, Pils' stream uh, we, we talked a little bit about like my own family background and uh, I mean most of my family were actually Pinochet supporters you know I'd love to tell some romantic story about how my parents left because they were like radicals and they wanted to escape from the Pinochet regime you know I wish I could have that story but no they just left because it was inconvenient and the country was in shambles, but they were, they were in no danger. In fact, my my grandfather was a colonel in the military, but he did retire pretty much right, I think right as Allende took power. So he wasn't involved in like any of the of the mass killings, or at least so I've been told, you know, maybe that's just like a, a lie, but but yeah, so I knew about it. My mother uh, is was sympathetic to Allende. I remember her, t- she was like the only one in her family, the only one of her four brothers and sisters That was sympathetic to socialism partially because she went to for for a number of reasons went to a public school didn't go to private school so she was even though she came from a fairly well-off family she like came into contact with working class people and i think that that had an impact on her where she she believed in 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 um the socialist ideals and and was kind of interested in marxism but yeah like when i would go home to chile like in my grandfather's office i think i said this on pills the stream there's still to this day as far as i know uh a portrait of Pinochet, uh, like framed, like, because he was very, like he was a supporter of the regime. I mean, he, he bought into the idea that Pinochet saved the country from an absolute disaster. And I think, it, and hopefully we can get into later in this podcast, because I did do some background, some secondary reading, and I think there might be some contestability about the extent to which Allende could have been successful with his economy. I mean, I think your video did a really good job of showing, uh, you know the ways in which he was initially successful, but I, I did read some stuff that did that seemed persuasive to me. That think that maybe it wouldn't have been sustainable in the long term. Um, but we can get into that. That sounds
0: later. exactly like someone whose uncle owns a factory in Chile. Would
1: say. <laughs> like somebody who was schooled in Chicago. It came
0: out. I know. I did some background research on you, Victor, and you're. If you could keep talking like that, I'm just going to call you Factory Nephew. <laughs> well,
2: I, but, but let me preview, though, the reason why I'm saying that, because I think I, I think about, um, you know, there's a, something that Zizek talked about uh, in his movie, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, when uh, which is like the, the ideology related to kind of like lost causes. And I think that there can be a temptation like and he, he uses the movie Titanic uh, as, a, as a case in point to say that, like, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio needed to die to preserve the idea of love, to preserve the ideology of love. And I think that to some extent we can fall into like the kind of romanticism about lost causes that it kind of preserves. Trotsky is exactly the same way. So so it's like so it's like the fact that you know this that there was this cybernetic utopia and it got like cut short. It's like I think it it can tempt us to think that it w- it was or would have been more successful than maybe it actually had the potential to be.
1: I mean that that is a fair point you have an image of a of a lost future that holds all this mystique versus maybe the reality being just kind of like mediocre and not very yeah, inspiring that's... but but I mean that's that's the problem with the lost futures right you'll never know exactly of
0: course you're 100% right i mean i don't know if you heard the reference but i said somewhere in there in defense of lost causes uh, citing exactly that And beyond that, of course, the documentary is biased towards the slant that this was visionary and ingenious without bringing up many of the problems that there was with it, including the bureaucracy, which also didn't want to get out of the way. And another one of the problems, for example, is that factory managers just didn't see the value in gathering all this information and sending it in on time because nobody knew. And I mean, nobody in the world knew uh, what a cybernetic system could be at the time. What computers could do. Right. This is 1970, and and to the point of lost causes. Whether or not this project would have worked if the U.S. you know just decided that they didn't want it to. We do know that cybernetic systems work. Of the most valuable corporations in the world, Amazon is of course my go-to example. They do work. They accomplish goals. Uh, but each of those is a profit driven system this is the only not the only one but one of the few examples of a system where the designers say we can do this and make people's lives better rather than we can do this and make a shit
2: ton of money so i mean i just want to know like why did you decide to explore Chile? like what was the impetus behind that was this something you've been thinking about for a long time like did you have the allende the chili thing was it because you studied cybernetics and this was sometimes an example that was brought up in that literature, Cybersyn? like, What's the story there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So part of the reason I wanted to do this episode, which we'll get to uh, more in the second half, is that I came to this with no knowledge of politics in Latin America or really any specifics about the CIA, right. really. But cybernetics, I, I know quite a lot about. So I did start It did start with, what can I say about cybernetics? But as the script started coming together, I wanted less and less this to be an explanation about cybernetics anymore, because in this case, that's not even half the story. Mm -hmm. So it became less about, here's what cybernetics is, and more about, look at what cybernetics could have been, because almost every other deployment Mm. of it is either to kill people or to make money, or to kill people and to make money. And the effort put into destroying this is just one glimpse of what another use of technology could have been. So that morphed into the main purpose of the project. I I mean, you can tell the injustice of it and the conspiracy of it. You can't explain why cybernetics always looks nefarious without the context around it all of why it always looks so nefarious, why it's only used for these ends.
2: Right, Which was a, quite a monumental task and took you far longer than any of your other videos, right? Yeah, it was
0: uh three and a half months, I guess
2: so it's interesting that you said um, the injustice of it outraged you. Uh, you know, the cynical pills who doesn't believe in political principles and stuff. It's just interesting to hear you use such 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 language, but but you believe in justice? I don't not have political
0: principles. I just okay. don't think that talking about politics is equivalent with politics.
2: Okay. So you, okay. Okay. I'm just. I'm just. I'm. I'm pushing you a little bit. I would I also you, extend you that like to, to make... say that making YouTube videos about politics is also not politics. So that's interesting. If I'm understanding you right, when you say that po- that politics, talking about politics, is not the same as politics. Sure, I certainly agree with that. But so what? So do you have a conception of the connection between? Between uh, theory and praxis, so like like, and I'm I'm assuming when you say that talking about politics is not politics, you mean that politics has to be something that's action oriented, that's like. uh, But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, You know, seizing control of an Amazon warehouse that would be a political action. Okay, right. Okay, so okay, So, so 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 then, but you say talking about politics isn't the same as politics, but you know, I've heard you sometimes, you know, in somewhat in vague jest make disparaging a humorously disparaging comments about like the the practice of political theory you know we have we have fun mate uh, giving jabbing each other here so so do you think that there's no purpose to talking about like do you think that there's any connection between like will theory will could theory help you do a better job of taking control of that amazon warehouse or do you just think that those two things are that there's no need to theorize about taking over the Amazon warehouse because you just do it. Okay, well, let's be clear about what this is because we
0: can say there's theory, then there's praxis, but this is an entertainment product. It is an educational entertainment product, to be fair, but it would be preposterous for me to say it's something more important than that. If you want to read the book on it, it's called uh, Cybernetic Revolutionaries by Eden Medina which is less entertaining, but also far more informative. However, it would be silly to suggest that someone's gonna get so inspired by a YouTube video that they're gonna seize a factory. That isn't the kind of thing that gets people to seize factories. Hunger, for example, is a much better impetus for action than infotainment or theory. Right. And as we're lucky enough to not be hungry, then we have time to do both entertainment, infotainment, and theory. So if at all, the way that I see this being worthwhile or being valuable is that projects like this are not seen very often because there are very different interests involved in the production of most media almost all of the time. And I hope what people get out of it, which is, why all of us are working on the various things we are working on is that the world we're in is not the only way a world could be. And if our world is this way, there are reasons for that. So can a YouTube video change the world? No, no period. But maybe a lot of people who thought the world could be changed could change it. The problem is that, one problem is that almost everything you hear in a day is that it can't and it won't so this video won't do that but it could be a drop in some future bucket. Allende for his part certainly thought the world could be changed and part of the tragedy of this story is that no matter how much you do right there's a good chance you're getting popped at the
2: end. Right right so it's a tragedy um I'm curious. So, I mean, maybe this is implied by what you've said before, but like if you, if, you know, people maybe haven't seen it yet or are, or they, they did see it already. Like what, when you were making it and assembling the pieces together, were you thinking about like what you wanted people to take away from it? Like, is it just like an emotion, an appreciation of it? Or do you want them to think about something more deeply? Like, what, did you have kind of an image in your mind about what you want people to take away from it?
0: Like with most of my, my work the world that you live in and the world that you're told you live in isn't the only possible world so maybe it would maybe it could inspire politics i think that's putting far too much uh it's far too much of a burden of action onto a youtube video but maybe it could inspire politics if more documentaries were like this instead of made by prager U or prager (laughs) you then this is the this is the pendulum swinging back the other way right fair and balanced
4: i (laughs) want to ask a a follow-up question actually about what happened after uh the coup because one of like the formative political experiences for me in fact one of the first things i can ever remember my parents being angry about was actually 1998 when pinochet actually almost went to trial um in Spain and then London, uh, and it was going to be a watershed moment actually in international law as well, because it was going to be one of the first times where a former head of state was put on trial for crimes that he committed against his people. And it didn't end up happening because Margaret Thatcher called some people and he got off and he lived the rest of his days in relative peace. But what do you think the answer to the kind of crimes committed about, like towards the Chilean people should have been? Uh, because one of the big disputes around, should we put Pinochet on trial? Should we put his lackeys on trial? Uh, was, look, this has happened, it was a tragedy, it's done, it's over now, Uh, nothing we can do can bring these people back, so it's time to just move on and allow ourselves to heal. Whereas other people said, no, healing means that the people who did this need to be made accountable to that. Uh, And if we are not made accountable for that, we cannot actually move on. And I think you see these kinds of dilemmas emerging, even to this day right now, uh, when they're trying to change the neoliberal constitution. And some of the defenders will say, you're still just responding to 1973 Uh, and you're unwilling to let that go and other people say no we're trying to finally recover from 1973 and inaugurate a new era in the country was that a question yeah i'm asking you what do you think the right attitude is to take towards this like do you just let things go and say you
0: know that i would never speculate on what the right attitude towards that is (laughs) like totally true
4: and what's the right
0: punishment for pinochet i mean he hired we could, we could even talk about Operation Condor a little bit here. The fucking rat lines. Like, if you are funding the guy that hires Nazis, and I don't mean that rhetorically. He hired Nazis to run his prison camps because they were, you know, that's, that's their skill set. That's on their CV. So if you're funding the guy and shaking hands with him and kissing his ass like Kissinger did... Then I think you're probably on the wrong side of history there. And Pinochet, I don't know if people know this. I don't know if you guys know this, but he he fucking killed people in the United States. There was a car Quite bomb. A car
3: Orlando bomb. A,
0: a car bomb blew up in Washington, DC, of the leader of opposition in exile that he just fucking assassinated. And they still just kept giving him money. So like the and the American propaganda about this, you ca- you see Nixon come on TV and he goes, we are a fair and good country. We're the greatest country in the world. We've done so much for the betterment of mankind. Like, just hold up a fucking mirror to your face. You're the devil.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, For that's sure. an economy story that he killed, like uh, Orlando Letelier. Yeah, uh, mm. I wanted to ask a question, and I'm sorry if I'm going to be a little bit harsh, but I think this is something that you tried to push a conversation before. <laughs> but you said, like, okay, um, June, I guess you noticed by doing this documentary and... I'm not not by doing this documentary, but I guess the whole documentary builds on the fact how like the u s. interventionism in Latin America, you mentioned Operation Condor and you probably mentioned also uh like the school of the Americas, who was basically the CIA and the u s military training like uh, the military in Latin America to basically disappear people and in you know, all these techniques to kind of, of, of social control. but my question is like, how uh, like uh, like when you perceive like you perceive you are critical of this interventionism but like how would you situate your role as a white dude coming from a canadian university you know that's making an educational video on a region that's kind of very foreign to your experience like cybernetics like the sci- like the whole project might not be foreign to you but like you know like i i don't know i'm i'm just curious about how you understand your role in this and as this kind of educational video maker you know
0: damn Virian coming out with the big guns good though
4: i think it's personally our job to save everyone
0: good uh I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought about it. So can I make a video about a context in which I have no first-hand experience? Yes. But should I make a video about a context which I have no first-hand experience? Well, that's a different question. So I have settled on an answer, which I hope is a good one, which is that yes, first-hand experience is uh, one form of information, Sometimes the way it's talked about, it sounds like people think it's the only valid form of information, like you can only talk about what you've experienced directly.
2: No one thinks that anymore.
0: Uh, which I don't mean to sound offensive, but as you said, Canadian academic person making a video about somewhere, he's never been in an event for which he was not alive. Um, but there are other forms of information besides firsthand experience that I think are also valid, uh, research read a bunch of books, committee reports, uh, even read acad- uh, economic articles on JSTOR. So I I guess I just have to hope that that's good enough. I don't I don't think that anyone who does anything historical has to have like a a personal connection to it, but I also hope, at least in this case that I didn't ride roughshod over the context. Um A lot of that is done using visuals, uh, the interviews in the documentary, the speeches in the documentary. It's it's not my voice saying this is what it's like, and it couldn't be because I wasn't there. But it's my voice saying something like, here are numbers, here are photos, here's Nixon's perspective on it, here's Allende's perspective on it. And if I were Chilean, it would have turned into a different project. If I were alive, it would have turned out differently. If I were a conservative economist, it would have turned out differently. So I could never, would never suggest that it's without bias uh, and probably blindness to certain nuances. Um, But if those biases preclude my saying anything about it at all, well, I'm, I'm not convinced of that.
2: Though I'm sure Victor's family will hate it. I'll let you know what my family thinks of it when it comes out publicly. I'll I'll, I'll pass that feedback on along to you. All my all my right wing neoliberal family members are probably gonna fucking hate it. <laughs> your, your comment there reminded me of a meme I saw not too long ago when like uh,
4: Falcon and the Winter Soldier was coming out, which is like how America perceives itself. And it was Captain America, you know, the Chris Evans uh, one. And it's like how the rest of the world sees America. And it was just like the Red Skull grabbing onto
2: the brick, being like, "I fucking dominate," all. Yeah, I, I did want to quickly ask though about the about the the cyber system and because i think there was one ambiguity i was left with after watching the video just like i mean i got in principle that it was taking in inputs and outputs from the from the factories but i'm kind of curious like was the purpose of the cybersyn system ultimately to, to just have an automated command economy or would there still be an economy that was responding to supply and demand and that there would still be some sort of like market activity because i guess i wasn't sure like I don't yeah I don't even know for sure if Allende was actually trying to eliminate private property and eliminate market exchange like free market exchange and just have it all be like kind of automated cybernetic system or and, and this cybernetic system would sort of assist in a kind of more limited free market exchange or would market exchange be totally replaced by this cybernetic system
0: um, well the cybernetic system there was there would be still pro- private property. He made no intention to abolish that. Um, His main concern was that the production of Chilean resources and then consumer goods that the government owned specifically, that was to be connected to the Cybersyn system. Right. So they're buying all American cars and American television sets with the raw materials that are coming out of the mountains in Chile. Um, and he just said, "Why don't we have a Chilean car company? Why don't we have a Chilean television company? Because um, then you just, yeah, you're you're basically cutting out the middleman. So there would, or there, w- the it wouldn't really affect the consumer side. I think that he saw if if, if the government had, um, you know, started their electronics company or their car company, that would compete with the other goods." Right. But the idea would be that it would be cheaper and affordable to Iende's base, which are the poorer people, and they would be able to afford those at the time luxury goods that only the politically connected were able to have access to.
2: Right. Right. OK. Uh, that, and it's, it's worth mentioning, too, that so he did. So Pinochet... Um, when he took over and he had the Chicago boys come and advise him on how to restart this sort of like free market Chilean neoliberal economy.
0: Dude, when they call that shit, the Chilean miracle, it is, it is,
1: that was Milton Friedman called it the miracle of Chile because by 1972, apparently Chile's inflation rate was at 150%. And during the 1980s, it, supposedly turned around yeah, yeah the, so, well, the inflation what I was, what I was, was
0: qu- the inflation was very high and that was partially because allende raised the wages of workers so they had money but it was caused in the most part because there was a blockade on all products entering yeah, Chile. it was exact-
2: exacerbated by the u.s so exactly. the, it was exacerbated by the u.s but there's but but there's a good to like, a I the mean, most degree a, to most an economists, insane degree though, from what I read though most economists were like Allende probably did raise wages a little bit too quickly because it did it did accelerate inflation to a point where like the purchasing power of that those raised wages started to become worse and then of course it was exacerbated by by uh, by blockades but I did just want to say like the irony of when Pinochet took over and he was like gonna privatize all the industries again he was like well the one thing that I'm not going to privatize is the copper mines. So they and all the economists agreed. They were like, actually it's probably a good idea for for Chile to 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 keep those nationalized copper mines, which is kind of amusing because um you know, I think that probably uh, a lot of American companies were pissed at that because, like, there was a lot of American interests in the copper mines. But I think even the Chicago boys, like the Milton Friedman's and stuff were like, economically, you actually should hang on to those mines and keep them nationalized. Um, yeah, that wasn't so uh, that wasn't one of his radical
0: policies, even um, the centrist that he was running against. He also wanted to uh, privatize the copper mines. So or
2: public or you mean take control. Of oh, yeah. Sorry
0: government. for uh, bring them under government control. Right, okay. Nationalize.
1: Well, in case you didn't know, last year, actually, uh, they finally repealed the Pinochet-era constitution. That actually happened last year in October. Uh, they celebrated the... Um, somebody, somebody's quoted as saying, we've been living under an illegitimate constitution created by a military regime that only allowed progress for those who had money... There's been very few times that Chilean people have shared a collective victory like today. This is this is from The Guardian. So they, they actually repealed those Pinochet era, which is odd because Milton Friedman, in an interview, says, you know, in the end, the Chilean economy did very well. More importantly, in the end, the central government, the military junta, was replaced by a democratic society. At first, it was... Leaning towards a communist regime, and then the military took over, which is a top-down regime. And then magically, this is part of the miracle, right? The uh, the free market economy succeeded. And then whenever whenever you hear the word free market economy, it means everything's privatized. That's what it means to Friedman and the Chicago boys. Yeah, with the and, Chicago but- boys,
0: there was something like six hundred state-owned companies, which were, you know, not just the mines, but factories and all that. After the Chicago boys, there was like eight. They sold the utility companies, sold the uh,
1: communications, telephone networks. They just sold all of it. Yeah, they privatize everything. And the way Friedman tells it is that in, the, in this interview he does in 2000, the way Friedman tells it is that the communist regime which is like a bottom-up regime. I don't know what else the fuck socialism is. It it got replaced by a military junta, top-down regime. And then due to their efforts, this military regime was replaced by a democratic free market regime. But then the way that people are framing this actual repeal of Pinochet-era constitutions is that All of this is continuous, like the Milton Friedman and the Pinochet regime change was actually a continuous thing. It wasn't, you know, military junta. And then it turns around when the Chicago boys come in like that was all a fucking continuous thing. And when you hear about this miracle of Chile, where, you know, they were in danger of going into hyperinflation, like it, it was all part of the same. That's all peas in the same fucking pod. Everybody's experiencing the this wealth gap being opened up
2: yeah it's hard to say i mean I'm, I'm i i agree that i mean i think one of the most astounding things in my opinion about the whole story is that he was democratically elected he wanted to keep the basic structure of the rule of law as written he didn't he didn't want to and this i think your video does a great job of of, of explaining all this um he didn't you know he didn't want to like like in cuba or the soviet union make like a, a, a command economy and like vanquish all of his uh, his um you know he tried to play fair Right. He tried yeah. to play within the framework, and he got Castro called him an idiot. Yeah, for doing that, right? And, but 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 there is an interesting thing. Like, I think that it's definitely up for debate how well he would have actually succeeded, how had he been allowed to to proceed. Like, I think that there's, I did a bit of reading. Like, I think there's maybe the inflation would have actually been quite a problem even without the blockades, because I think he probably was raising wages a little bit too quickly for the economy to handle if he was going to keep things the way they were. But um, definitely still uh an astounding expression of injustice uh but we see
0: and this is the main kind of the main point of the documentary is we see cybernetic systems work amazon fucking works great except that it has except that keeps the exploitation so this was meant to be and it could have been a cybernetic system that made a functional government um, and that ran a nationalized economy instead of a completely privatized
2: economy is there any is there any examples of like more cybernetic governments in in, in that right now that like in this the Soviet Union could have and they
0: had some experiments in that direction but their bureaucracy was so bloated and there were so many like you know those, yeah. Like the communication wasn't there. People wanted to keep right. the piece of the pie that they had. So the Soviet Union could have done it, but it, they were too. Uh, they were chewing like, it for themselves too, too we, much. We've too
1: got food. a cybernetic free market, not a cybernetic government system Pumpkin. at yeah. all. Big data, right? Yeah. This 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 whole thing is kind of like a story of big data as well. And you th- like you have the Chile big data. In use for the benefit of the nation and the people, and today we have, you know, big data in use for private profit and, you know, corporations.
2: And for and for making profiting off of the biochemical drama of our children's minds, uh, with with the with their phones. To to quote to quote uh, Bill Bur- Bo Burnham from his from his from his special. One
4: of the interesting things about cyber capitalism and there's a lot of good marxist theorists doing uh about this is that there was actually this utopian neoliberal moment in the early 2000s where people were commenting on how we were past the period of crises uh and business cycles because digital technology would be allow capitalists to predict so accurately the way the economy was going uh that they'd be able to make strong investments and they'd be able to finance uh, properly uh and then Two thousand eight happens, uh, and there's this gigantic leap of faith uh, that people take, uh, saying, "No, we still should put our convictions uh, in this direction because all that we need to do is devise better digital technologies, uh, and then the system won't be prone to these kind of crises."
2: My friend, my friend uh, works in like uh, basically like trying to automate the bureaucracy of Canada. Like that's his job in the government, and uh, he was actually telling me that. Although it's not quite the same as the type of cybernetic system you were talking about. But he was telling me that like the most kind of like integrated, well integrated into like uh, the web and just like networks, government, bureaucracy is actually Estonia. They're like uh, like everything is very streamlined in Estonia. Like so, for example, the one example he gave me is like when you're born it's like, uh, you're, you don't even need to sign up for anything. So like as parents, like I think automatically, like the, the system will see, oh, you have a child and then they'll automatically sign you up for all the tax benefits. Uh, the, like the, 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 the birth certificate, like all these things are integrated. So like the systems know when one thing is inputted to, to adjust everything else for that couple automatically and everything runs in the background. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, like if you watch the video, you you understand that like the the cybernetic aspect is meant to get to the problems quicker, right? So it's it's mentioned, for instance, that like with the cybernetics system in place, right, they can get to disruptions in the supply line, in the production before they disrupt the supply line. Whereas today's governments get information about the way the market is going, maybe, I don't know what the number is today, two, four, six months after the actual event has occurred, they get the information about it. So they're acting way after the fact. What the cybernetic thing is supposed to do is, you know, one, yeah, take out the bureaucratic inefficiency and to help them react to the problem quicker by getting real-time information about from all these different sources but here's here's an interesting quote by Milton Freeman. Uh, this is really funny to l- w- listen to. After watching this video, you should watch this video then recall this quote, Milton Freeman, quote, 2000, Nixon was the most socialist pre- of the presidents of the United States in the 20th <laughs> century. That's what he said. And then the interviewer says, I've heard Nixon accused of being many things but never a socialist. He says, well, well, his ideas weren't socialist, but quite the opposite. But if you look at what happened during his administration, first of all, the number of pages in the federal register, like he goes on to make this bullshit. Like, I don't even think it's a walk back. He's just doubling down. Something about the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, he, he created yeah, Nixon, Nixon created is it. the most socialist of presidents. So this, the most socialist president of the United States, he was too socialist for Allende, I think. He was like, you, you think you can do socialism, Allende? Nixon's like, I can do fucking socialism. Here we go. Hold my beer. And then he did <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> yeah, one, the one emphasis or the one stress I want to put on all of this is not, is like cybernetics. We, we always say technology is not neutral. But cybernetics can do some really evil shit.
2: So yeah. it's not like I'm
0: saying cybernetics... You're, not some, you're I,
2: not some techno-utopian. Yeah,
0: I'm not. I am certainly not a techno-utopian, but the point of a cybernetic system, like according to systems theory, is like the, the goals that you give something are going to bring about its outcome. And so far, all of our cyber's, cybernetic systems, except this one experiment, are capitalist pretty much. And this was the one, uh, the one lost future of something that could have been different.
1: Yeah. It would be a real big mistake to look at this sort of technological apparatus as neutral. It would be a very big mistake. It definitely, you know, draws the bow pretty tight, but whether it's going to shoot left or right depends on how it's used in the end, but it's certainly far from just a neutral, sort of thing we can project our desires and our future utopias onto right okay so on
0: that concluding point uh you can watch it on the 18th publicly but it is pre-released for patrons already yeah i'm hoping it does well because well i sunk about 500 hours into it and that is frankly a very stupid thing to do if you are a servant to the dark algorithmic gods. But as we alluded to before, the world has not changed all that much. Uh, Victor said something interesting way back during your family biography, that your mom was less hostile to Allende because she went to public school as opposed to private school. So on that note, I wondered if, Mirian, you taught at a private school. Could you elucidate some of the way that class works, at least in the Mexican context and how that's reflected in the education system
3: oh there is i've uh i've uh, met people from around the region like uh, i have friends living in paraguay i've traveled to brazil uh, and i have friends uh from back the day like living in colombia and argentina and elsewhere and i think um that it, some of the experiences are very similar Where it's not only like Well, of course, there is a class I mentioned, like, um, people will try to favor, if they can, sending their kids to like um private school right even since elementary school even sometimes even before that right uh it also gives you a lot of advantages because if you go to private school you are more likely to learn a second language mm-hmm. very well and for some people it's not even a second language it's a third language so of course that since you're very little that already is like expands your opportunities of course that puts you in a better position to go to university like I I went to a private high school and even my friends that couldn't afford to go to a private university they uh, guarantee their kind of their spot in the national public university right so you of course receive a better education and I guess because there are so many things to say but I I guess one of the things is um private universities in Mexico are very class oriented right there there's this whole mentality which oh no like like from the inside and from the outside right like uh at least the university I went to like there's um there's a lot of people that receive scholarships. I, I also was a scholarship recipient, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm on like I'm I'm, I'm the like rich side, my parents can afford this, right? But even like the people that receive a scholarship, like they develop, I think, this mentality, like oh like some sort of like I deserve this, right? I work hard, and this is not to say I, I work hard through university, right? It's like hard enough that like well, you have to read the exams, etc. It's not to say that people don't work hard, but I think that like there's this very like I don't know like mentality that oh no like you are gonna be the entrepreneurials you are the ones that know you are gonna be the class at least this country right and even if it's not out of as overtly expressed there are so many things that kind of develop this sense this this kind of ideas in people not to say the majority i also had a lot of classmates that were very left wing like left wing as i was which was nice right to 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 have like this some sort of like I guess solidarity but I also seen the same happening in uh like in other countries as I said with my friends in in, in Colombia and Argentina where of course like people that go through private schools are also more likely to work for foreign companies, like to have better opportunities. Like one of the things I remember people will tell us in university will be like, oh, well, just because you are graduating for this university, your CVs, like when you are applying for a job, like recruiters will look at your like CVs first, then they will look at other universities, right? So it not only creates these weird individuals that I don't like, right? That they have this sense of entitlement But they also has played a huge role, I think, recently in the kind of, um, in the polarization at least of my own country between like the, the president we have now who is, who campaigned as a leftist. I have my doubts, but the whole point, his whole point was to fuel the anger against like the upper middle class and the middle class, right? As like, all oh, these people that have this sense of entitlement, and I'm not saying they don't, a lot of them do, but, and I feel that maybe a similar thing was what happened in Brazil with Bolsonaro, you know? Like, mm. like the rich versus the poor kind of thing that like happens a lot of time. I also seen it in Colombia, like, uh, now that they, there was a protest, right? Like huge protest uh, earlier during the year and last year. Sadly, like the upper middle class friends that I have, like their way of resolving the issues is like, oh, let's just not fight, right? When like people that come from poor backgrounds, it's like, well, no, there are so many deep issues here. And even if they don't receive like a formal training education, they recognize them because they lift them, right? So I think that sometimes private education insulates you from some of the things going on in the world that you don't get unless you go to, I don't know, to public school. Uh, uh, like you are in touch also for people from, with people from a more working class background or like from other paths in life, right?
4: Yeah, I just want to give one anecdotal story that I, I did think was really funny, but it expresses these kinds of divisions very nicely. So when I was teaching at Techno to very, very advanced private school, costs a lot of money, uh, but it competes regularly with the major public university there, UNAM. Uh, which will offer major bursaries for students to come, but not enough to live particularly well. You'll basically have enough to go to school, live in a very shitty apartment, and feed yourself. That's it. Uh, So to celebrate the birthday of our university, we partnered with Starbucks to create a very special Frappuccino with the school colors. Uh, And somebody at the public university took issue with that, and a bunch of our students ended up sending out tweets and Instagram photos, drinking the Starbucks Frappuccino and bragging about how much money they had, and how many of these they were going to have over the course of the day. And it created a huge uproar with people attacking the school, saying this goes to show you how uppity these people are. They won't even drink Mexican coffee. And then, you know, our school fired back by being like, well, this is how cutting edge and American we are. It was a huge mess where there was just weird intersection of anxieties about class, um, Latin American status, um, social prestige, all of it kind of getting mired in to the debate around this frappuccino.
0: So my next question, uh, I guess we've three political theorists here, but one thing that I hear often uh, said in chat rooms and and things like that is the there is a vibrant left in Latin America. And I wondered if you could explain, or any one of you actually, elaborate on the extent to which that's true and how it compares with a, a country like ours, which I don't know if you could really say that there's a left. Here, an actively political left
2: well it's true that nominally it seems like latin american countries have a more activist left that has taken power like nominally in the sense that they're labeled and they make these promises but they've also been uh a lot less stable and a lot less successful at implementing like meaningful uh change and there's a lot of reasons for that a lot of them have to do with like the i'm sure the influence of the United States and neoliberalism, but I think there's also like a, a more fundamental problem that maybe we'll talk about. Uh, that I think just has to do with sort of like the 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 role of institutions, how well how well they're trusted. Because I mean, the moment that you don't trust uh, an institution as a society, it means that any changes that try to funnel through those institutions are much much more difficult to accomplish. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the concrete. Marion would probably know more about the actual political parties, at least in Mexico, I'm sure, which I would know like pretty much nothing about. I know a little bit about Chile, but not that
3: much. I think Latin America has a very rich history in terms of like, uh, like leftist movements and thought. Uh, I actually one of my favorite spots in Mexico city is by the history museum which is the castle which has been uh, it was to build for the vice v- viceroy I guess uh and eventually the the viceroyalty ended so uh it became a building that was given many uses but there's a a mural there a painting that has like basically depicts like the history like Mexican Revolution where like the the revolution was largely started by the nation bourgeoisie that was like uh, unhappy that they were not politically represented but it rapidly turned into like a national movement and eventually you had like the peasants rising and the mural is a picture of the peasants and then Marx at the beginning of them, right, kind of marching and giving them the red book, right? So it's like very, very, like, uh, I don't know, I guess symbolic. But uh, what I was uh, going to say uh, is like I didn't know that that it was like that famous in leftist circles until I went to London. And you will see like someone like Slavoj Zizek using it as an example. And uh, a lot of leftists that I talk that are from Europe, and they knew about it. They also knew, for, for example, about the Zapatistas in Mexico, the fight against the state. So, i didn't i had no idea that these movements were like had so much international prestige for what they were but um what i want to say is like yes there has like you have to understand that latin america is a continent that after they after the their different countries gain independence they also had they had to fight other other sorry forms of uh colonialism, right? France tried to have their share of the continent. England tried to fire their share of the continent. So there was always this kind of opposition towards colonialism, for example, for the whole like 19th century was like, try to like fence this power off and also try to oppose, like the liberal tradition is a strong tradition in Mexico and the continent, because it was a way of fighting off imperial, like European imperialism. Uh, and then during the 20th century, You have like the for the second half, you have the Cold War. Also, you had at the beginning of the century, like the Russian Revolution, and a lot of movements that were inspired by the the Russian Revolution and that that thought that something like that could be done in the continent. Uh, And then with the rise and the consolidation of American, like hegemonic power, and the more, of course, pretentious like the US got about the region being basically their backyard the more you saw the rise of uh gorillas. It was not only like um political parties but it since like there was no opportunity to form political parties like uh as you mentioned with chile chile after the coup they had a, a military junta like ruling in mexico there was an hegemonic party so and, and and that's the history of most of the subcontinent and and of mexico so there was really not much opportunity to create a party more like so this was expressed in in, in the form of guerrillas like chile had their own guerrillas mexico so Mexico Mexico was um, all the south of Mexico has a history during the 20th century of Jewish leftist guerrillas that were also uh, that were looking towards Cuba for support. They uh, they never really got it in that respect, but and they also looked to the USSR right elsewhere to try to form like international bonds. I guess today what you're seeing is again like like a lot of resurgence of like leftist movements. One of the strongest movements today in the region, I will say, is a feminist movement. It has created like regional and international ties that I don't think. Like I think few movements managed to create before them, at least in Latin America, right? Like, there was this group of of women called uh, Las Tesis who created, like, they are from Chile, I actually think, and they created a feminist anthem that was sung everywhere, from like Latin America to Russia. Like, I, this is not to say there has been a feminist movement like in Mexico, Latin America for like decades, but. Until very recently, they managed to like have more support and also create more international like uh, links that I don't think I've seen. Like I think it's a dream of some of the you know like your socialist bros in the region. It was a dream that they never succeeded. Like the women like started to do it until very recently, which I think is, um, yeah, like somehow unexpected. uh, in the sense, not that they couldn't, but that people didn't thought it was going to be them, I think, leading the the left today.
4: I tend to agree with John Steinbeck that one of the reasons why socialism never took root in the United States, and I would add Canada and maybe even the UK to that list, uh, is Americans and Canadians don't like to see themselves as poor or exploded. They like to see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. There's this kind of insistence on a middle class kind of attitude that really isn't present in my experience in the region. People are much more cognizant of the fact that society is divided into rich and poor, uh, that people who are at the top have a lot more power and influence and those at the bottom have far less. Uh, And there's all kinds of forms of of exploitation associated with that. And it's not hard to figure out why that would be if you look at the history of the region and the extraordinary classism that emerged with the Spanish colonial system and that persisted down to this day, uh, which is often associated with like very vehement degrees of racism as well. Uh, the second thing that I think a lot of people underestimate when it comes to how, why it is there's such a vibrant left in Latin America, and this is especially true of Western leftists, uh, is the importance of religion and uh, religion and the way that many people were able to mobilize major religious texts in the region uh, for radical causes. If you think about the emergence of something like liberation theology, very influential, particularly in South America. Uh, And it was essentially an attempt to combine Marxism with Christianity, which very few people uh, elsewhere in the world have thought to do. Uh, And it was a very appealing mixture, right? Uh, Since it allowed people to basically hold to conventional or traditional religious values, uh, but reappropriate them in anti-capitalist ways. Uh, It's worth noting, you know, one of the founders of the mexican revolution uh jose morelos uh was a priest right he's the one who kind of led the revolt uh against this exploitative system right uh
3: no but it was miguel hidalgo oh,
4: thank you yeah sorry i i got the two confused excuse me uh the last thing i think that's also really important is that um starting especially in the 1950s, and this is being more modern, there was a really anti-colonial uh, quality to socialism that made it very appealing to many people in the region who were determined to resist American imperialism. Uh, and I think that this actually isn't unique to Latin America. You also saw it in places like sub-Saharan Africa and their kind of own anti-colonial efforts against the British. Uh, of course, they kind of mobilized it in a lot of different ways uh, that were pretty unique to them. But like Marion said, I think that you're really seeing a resurgence of some kind of that anti-colonial independence-minded spirit and some of the more successful leftist movements that have emerged in the reason, whether you're thinking about like the Workers' Party in Brazil, uh, the movement for socialism uh, in Bolivia, which I think people should talk more about, uh, or even AMLO uh, in Mexico, although I have issues with that. So those are the three reasons I think that there's been a lot more strength uh, for the left on the ground in Latin America than there has been elsewhere.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because when i visit my family i'll like tell them that you know i'm on the left and i think it's interesting that they have i think because of the well sort of the observation i kind of made was like it's it seems like at least in chile there's not really like um uh I, I think they feel that there's no like what what can be perceived as like you know a, by centrists as like a reasonable left-leaning party like in their mind it's either like we're with the like the full-out neolibs Or with these people who we think might be crazy and are going to do like insane things. So like it kind of whereas like I'm just like, well, in the left in North America and Europe is like, I mean, there's a left that's nascent, but there's also like a lot of more center left parties that give that kind of offer an option, I think. Uh, So that's the at least my read from my family that because I'll tell them I'm like, I always vote left. And they're just like what they're like but i'm just like it's different in canada like they're like you you'd vote for them too probably if you lived in canada
3: yeah i also think that what's perceived left in latin america uh, in comparison to what's perceived like left in canada like i don't know it's interesting to me that something that people that are centrist might accept like like they will not necessarily maybe perceive, perceive them as left or are willing to accept them because maybe they think it's left, but just because it benefits them, they'll they accept them. That's not the case in Latin America, I think, or at least in Mexico. People will, like, if it has a left association, it will be like, oh, no. Even if it benefits them, I think, you know, like, uh, for example, like social security. Like, when, when that was established in Mexico, it was, like, a very good system that got, like, like overwhelmed over the years, like the po- as the population grew, then the governments like start to undermine it, to try to privatize it, so now it's a mess. And I think one of the things that the feminist has recognized, at least in my country, Mexico, is that they are gonna push outside of the political parties, kind of like as women's organizations from like NGOs and like from the local congresses to make the changes needed. So it's a way to bypass this problem of the left being unable to do something. What they have done is rely heavily on the support of the citizenship, of the citizenry, and also to go to the local congresses instead of the, like, you know, the national congresses to try to actually operate some form of change. Uh, and like, and I have to say that they have managed to accomplish like important things like typifying, um, you know, I don't know, like, uh, like the term in English, but it's like when you share your private photos with someone now that is a crime in Mexico. Like if, if you reshare those now in Mexico, you can go to jail and they did it like they managed to did it like again uh, uh, pushing from outside the like the, the the normal thing would be okay like let's have a political party support this etc right but i think it, it speaks directly to what you were saying like the, it, like it is true that some people perceive that in latin america that the left doesn't work and that they don't have a program because they like I don't know. There, there's all sorts of problems there, but I think, uh, like, to a certain degree is true, right? Um,
4: and I think you can see something interesting happening in Latin America also with things like Bolsa Familia, uh, introduced by the Workers' Party in Brazil under the Lula administration. Because what's interesting is, despite being like a far-right demagogue, Bolsonaro has tried to roll back some of the Lula administration welfare reforms. And he hasn't been able to do so because they're ubiquitously popular, including with a large part of his socially conservative, uh, but economically moderate base, right? Uh, and they're popular because they work. I mean, Brazil's poverty rate went down from 12 to 7% over the Lula administration. So you can't really retract these kind of things without creating a big uproar. Uh, so I think what this really just proves is the left needs to create institutions that people like, uh, and they like them because they work, You know, at least for the people that they're intended to help, right? And I think that one of the problems is that we don't always do that very successfully if we focus too much on big structural and ideological changes rather than things like famine relief, providing health care, you know, making sure that kids, people, families with children, make sure their kids are taken after, looked after, that kind of stuff. So
0: we like our political theory here. We like debating the basis of power and you know the ideal grounds of democracy. But the left there is not only trying to win elections, but also trying to compete with foreign corporate interests. So we've talked at length about American intervention in Chile. But before we get on our high horse, which for Canadians is like, well, at least we're not them. But our mining corporations are equally as evil. And in countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, several times a year, union activists trying to organize workers are threatened or they just disappear. So lest we excuse ourselves, uh, we're implicated. And Miriam said it earlier, but the quote is that this is this is our backyard and what's your backyard well you don't live there you just store your shit there until you need it and then go there once in a while to relax on a deck chair so i don't know not not like we can do much we can theorize politics online or in books
4: but there's no there's no head of the snake (laughs) just in case you want to sue a canadian mining company and you're a foreign national as of 2019 supreme court ruling you can uh so if you're an air trader in Latin America and you want to come to Canada to sue the ass off one of our mining companies in our Supreme Court, I strongly endorse you doing so. And if you are in Toronto while doing it and you come to my <laughs> house, I will personally buy you a beer and toast to your success.
0: And you couldn't do this before 2019? You just couldn't sue a company?
4: It's very hard to, full, to sue um, a private company in the host country uh, of that company. There's a huge amount of entanglements that aren't sue. So the supreme court did actually try to make it easier in part because canadian mining companies were really getting such a bad reputation for exactly all the things you were describing like just going and killing people wiping out you know uh you know union leaders all the stuff that canada wants to be known for all right so how do we do
0: political theory in an environment like that
2: well i think that part of the problem with political theories so, well actually i mean i think that part of the problem with leftist egalitarian emancipatory political theory is actually that it doesn't take those things into account or it does take them into account but kind of in like the wrong way. I think sometimes it's this kind of what my dissertation's about. It's like I think that it takes these things as being like so monolithic, these 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 forces which they are in a sense, um that like the that it kind of like hedges towards well that means the only thing that we can do is like revolution, violent overthrow, violent revolution because like these forces are so strong and I think that like I think that political theory needs to do the work to be like, well, how can you work? Um, how, like, how do you keep your eyes on at least left wing political theory on just like making people's lives better within those systems, within those constraints, within, within the things that actually like taking into account the barriers to change, the barriers to action. Um, I think that that has to be included uh, in political theorization, at, at, not just as something that needs to be like destroyed or revolutionized against
3: yeah I would agree with Victor that uh, sadly the Western canon like the mo- like the canon itself I'm not saying like um there are no people critical to it but like it like fails to give answers there um in the sense that it usually treats these issues as non-relevant or uh, like accidents or um like um, Doesn't even treat sometimes like uh, the problems, for example, with race, right, or with colonialism. and this is very overt when you take any class on political theory, right? On the history. And wow. then when you come to Kant and people like Matthew, who like Kant, will tell you, oh, but he was not that racist, right? And there are the some people that tell you, no, he was a racist, right? Or, or when you try to, like, or, or when you look at Locke and yeah, he might be this egalitarian, but then he has some problematic things when it comes to race, right? So I think this is all just to say that, uh, that gets, like, it's like, Yeah, like Western political theory, I think, uh, like, I will say, aside from Marx, who kind of saw that this had kind of a global and geographical dimension to it Mm -hmm. that was important to highlight, I will say that other, like, most of the theories, like, fall short on trying to understand this. And I've, Like in Latin America, I think there has been a huge recognition of that, of this issue, because there has been a huge push towards what's called uh, epistemologies of the South which yeah. is kind of a decolonis- the decolonization of your thought first, right? Like, uh, and this plays in all aspects, not only in, ep- in epistemology, but it also, like there are some feminists that, for example, say, why are we fighting about this whole feminist category, for example, with the trans, when, like, the whole category of women, sorry, why are we fighting these, like, gender categories, or excuse me, like, when the whole, impos- like, the whole idea of being a woman was, for example, an imposition, Imposition from the West that was so different from the idea of what being a woman was for a lot of people in the global south, like for example, Africa or like Latin America, right? Uh, Or like uh, it has to do, for example, with that, but in political theory, it also has to do with like, well, let's try to find the categories that actually help us like understand and process our own reality in the like. Kind of highlighting these terms. Kind of like this is a region that had during the 20th century had to fight not only against its own like uh, antagonisms and problems, but also with like a foreign intervention, like the sorry for the intervention from the US. where uh, I think this has been sometimes overly used as an excuse from the left to try and justify their own failures. And it also plays as a um, it played a major role in the rhetoric of someone like Chavez and Maduro to kind of get by with their authoritarianism, right? So, and I think sometimes this also plays a role when it comes to theory, because people are like, I and, and this has happened to me here too, when you talk to people that are very like critical of like, the canon in political theory, for example, but also like in a lot of the humanities and social sciences, like because you want to be so critical, but because they want to be so critical from like from these impositions, they are willing to kind of ditch them and also ditch the good that can come from them, you know? And it's like, well, what's the point of having all this history of thought where like kind of, uh, some of it has actually advanced some interesting positions when you're going to just say, well, it doesn't work, let's get away with it, right? It's like, well, but like, what about, I don't know, like to me, it seems kind of naive. It seems like that's not the way to go to just say, well, this is knowledge that has been imposed to us and that's it. Like think about the times of corona. Okay, so since science, since Western science is an imposition, let's not get vaccinated. Let's not get the advice from doctors. You know, you are very like you're one step away from this kind of type of like like no like kind of opinions that I don't know, I get uncomfortable with. So I do think that there's some interesting things that come from recognizing this kind of um imperialistic practices that have deeply damaged like the region they take the lives of a lot of environmental activists as you mentioned in Canada in Mexico at least uh, supports the criminal organizations to kind of get rid of the environmentalists so they can kind of have access to the land, right? So of course you have to like denounce that. But then there's this boundary that people are willing to go on. This is where the public university in Mexico at least plays a role. It also fuels a lot of like anger against everything that's foreign. And it has also come, uh, Oh, sadly, our president today in Mexico is like that. He defunded all scholarships for you to go study abroad because no, like, like, why do you want to go abroad? Like, that's wrong. Like, stay in Mexico, right? Kind of like, like curtails. Like, for example, me as a political theorist, like, I do like Western political theory. That's what I like to do. It's like, oh, no, stay in Mexico and do what I want you to do. It's like, it's some sort of like, to me, it's like, I don't know, in a way, it's also curtailing, like, as a leftist government, as it's, as it's supposed to be, like, it is just ending your kind of, the possibility of you pursuing your individual like aspirations, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, there's some positive thought. I, I, what I want to say is, of course, there there are so many also things that have to be done. But for example, what I've seen in Mexico, is like a lot of people like are, of course, furious at the Mexican companies, sorry, at the Canadian companies, but they do not do anything else. For example, they do not pressure the Mexican government, so they develop mechanisms, so you can sue a Canadian company in Mexican soil, you know? Like, think about, like, this is, like, you mentioned, Matt, well, they can sue canadian companies here this is people that don't have the money to even leave their communities you know they do this because it's their survival so th- it's not like they have access to lawyers and they don't know the language it's like oh like like it's not that they're the resource like their legal resource might be there but it's just a formalism i think for the government to say oh we're doing something when you're actually not doing enough because how is this person in fact, sue the company. So I think, but like in Mexico, as I said, like, Oh, no, Canadian mining companies are the devil and they are but there's nothing much done to kind of actually do something, you know. Um, in the last elections, people didn't, in, di- didn't even in these regions with the Canadian mining companies, sometimes it, they didn't even voted for candidates that had a kind of a, like, an agenda that included, I don't know, some uh, environmental issues. So I think there are like a lot of problems in there.
4: The kind of thing that I think is problematic when it comes to applying Anglo-American political theory to the region uh, is twofold, right? Uh, One is that a lot of Anglo-American political theory is attracted to what's sometimes called transcendental institutionalism, which is basically the job of a political theorist is to be an ideal theorist, uh, tell you the kind of institutions you should have, almost invariably state institutions, uh, and then say, just go out and build those, you know, tinker with them a little bit for regional thing, like uh, context, uh, but more or less, that's what we want, right? Uh, And the kind of lack of interest in theorizing about things like power, for example, uh, particularly economic power, but also other forms of power uh, that... You know, is essential to understanding a lot of the problems in the region. Just doesn't really filter into this kind of political theorizing all that often. It's gotten a little bit better uh, since the 1970s or 1980s, but it's still a major problem, right? Uh, the other thing that I think that's also very problematic, and it's related to this problem of transcendental institutionalism, uh, is that Anglo-American political theory remains very fixated on the idea of the state, and in particular, this fetish for a well-functioning state. Uh, that's going to create order, allow the economy, and uh, particularly the market economy, to kind of do its thing. Uh, and that will provide a minimal degree of resources pretty effectively to the population. Uh, there's very little interest in theorizing it in a context where the state may not be capable of doing those kinds of things, even if you want it to. And there's also very little interest in theorizing about how it is that international relations and geopolitics play a major role in actually determining what it is that the state does. And I think one of the reasons why Anglo-American and for that matter, European political theorists just aren't that interested in this is they've never really had to consider this problem all that carefully. For the most part, going back to the Treaty of Westphalia, there was this supposition that the sovereign independent state could more or less do what it liked, you know, uh, including in its colonies. That's never been the case in the Latin American region where there's always been this concern that some imperial power is going to come and essentially determine how it is that your state's going to organize its business even internally. Uh, And this is where I think Marion is correct, that one of the few political theorists who actually was sensitive to this question very early on was Karl Marx, uh, who was arguably the first political theorist since at least the scholastics uh, to take geopolitics as seriously as he took state politics, right? Uh, Pretty much everyone else, uh, if you think about Montesquieu, Locke, uh, Rousseau, even some radical like Rousseau, uh, Mill, you know all of them are thinking in a status context rather than thinking geopolitically, right? So I think for political theory to really touch on the region, it needs to give up its fixation on transcendental institutionalism, uh, and it needs to be able to recognize that it th- that it's impossible to theorize about politics in a status context while ignoring geopolitics completely. That It represents a very privileged, Eurocentric, and Westphalian kind of conception of what it is that political theory is supposed to do.
2: I think that... Well, I largely agree with some of that. I, I do want to resist a little bit. I think that sometimes in in theorizing about non-Western contexts, there's like a little bit too much of an emphasis on just trying to kind of like blame the geopolitics or whatever to say like, oh, well, you know, it's 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 all because like there's some like the, the it's like blaming it all on like the industrialized countries, which is, you know, I mean, it's true that that no doubt um, Western countries have have had a, um, have had an impact. I mean, I was going to talk about trust before. Am I allowed to talk about it now, or not yet? <laughs> All right, Victor. I'll feed you the question you've been waiting for. Victor,
0: what do you think about the suburban undergrad kids uh, fetishizing Latin American movements without taking the context into account? I know you love the when the kids bring up the Zapatistas to you.
2: Oh uh, yeah, of course. I I like that question. I've I've thought about it for a long time. They use. I I think that that they use that example sometimes with undue optimism about what it actually means and maybe don't necessarily look into like, um, the empirical outcomes. Although, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know too, too much about the Zapatistas and specifics, but I've read a few articles that it's not necessarily what it's cracked up to be. But I did want to say that, like, I think part of the, the, the uh, to me, the elephant in the room when trying to understand, to theorize, like why aren't, these countries able to build sustained movements and, and have like change, I guess like like some sort of systematic social institutional change that actually leads to like concrete improvement in people's lives. And I think that like, yes, there's these geopolitical factors that have an impact. And, and, but I think that also there's this question of like trust, what kind of like trust culture is there in those societies? And of course there's a lot of reasons for why um, there might be like a lack of trust in institutions. And maybe some of those reasons are, um, you know, geopolitical but I th- still think like ultimately um, to me one of the most interesting realms of theorization is to like think about um, what what it what it, to what extent do the people in in these countries in these contexts have trust have a foundation of trust in each other and in institutions because I mean I can say at least anecdotally from traveling to Chile and I think in talking to Marion at other times she she reported similar experiences in in Mexico, There's like, there's a, there's this kind of mentality in Chile, at least where people always think that everyone else is trying to fuck them over. Like, like, like everyone assumes that everyone else is out to get them. And like, I think, and and they think that like, you know, the government's trying to fuck them over. This person's going to try to like screw you over. Like you should cut that person off because if you don't cut them off on on the highway, you're going to get cut off. And it's just like, there's no trust to like make space for like the goodwill of other people or at least much less. And I think that that's going to like have a bleeding effect onto how people it, respond to to proposals to change things, like they're not going to trust those changes. And then I think people in government too, like I think this culture of like l- not having trust in institutions and in your fellow um, citizen ends up having this deleterious effect, where even politicians it also has a self reinforcing effect, where they're because they think everyone else is trying to skim off the top. I better skim off the top too, because other people are going to skim off the top if I don't. And it's like, and somehow there's something that happened in Westernized countries where, uh, well, or industrialized countries, because it's not Western countries. In fact, I was looking at the empirical research on trust in government polls, and it's actually all Asian countries that have the highest trust in government. It's like North, it's like South Korea, not North Korea, South Korea, Japan, and then like, and then the, like the European and North America. And it's like, I wonder, and I think that that's that like, you need that base level. So, I, so to me, like the answer to this puzzle, I guess, is like, we have to figure out how you get that culture of trust because without that culture of trust, any change you have is going to be doomed to fail. Yeah, like, and, and like the, there obviously is a chicken and the egg problem here, but like, I think you need that. Um, you need that to, to, to come up with a, with a plan to foster that somehow. And I'm not exactly sure how.
4: No, I I taught classical political thought at Tech nine times. And actually the most popular modules that I taught were, Pills is probably gonna be shocked by this, but uh, the feminist one was really popular, but the other two were Rawls and Nozick because we did three weeks on the debate between them. Uh, And a lot of people were really interested in this because interest in inequality was extremely high among students, right? Who should get what, why, how? Uh, But the number one thing every student mentioned uh, when we talked about how it is you could implement either a libertarian society or a Rawlsian you know, liberal socialist society was, yeah, but I would never trust the government to actually create institutions like that. Like you actually think that the state could organize itself that way. Come on. Who are you kidding? Right. That was the uniform objection made to this kind of ideal theorizing was just that nobody trusted uh, institutions and nobody trusted their neighbor to actually live by uh, these kinds of idealizations.
2: Yeah, and I actually want to hear Marion because I know that she, she expressed to me, if she is willing to share, about some of her experience with more like radical leftist, like classmates that would talk about certain things. And uh, I don't know, you had really interesting things to say about that.
3: Yeah, I guess maybe you can remind me because sometimes I forget my own thoughts. But no, what I was going to say, going back to Peel's question about, well, what this romanticized version that you're, you know, like your anarchist in their mom's basement have about. I think that people fail to realize because maybe I don't know their own experience, their own set of values is Latin America is a very socially conservative region. Like even you, when you have your leftist bros, they might not. They might be no, but like anti-abortion, you know, or like, why are you dressing like that as a woman, you know, like, uh, like it's a region at least Mexico Catholicism. It's like it's still practiced by. 88% 88% of the population. They might not go to like church every Sunday, you know, but they still hold those values like dearly and they play a huge role. So I think oh, my uneasiness when people say it's like, oh, let's overthrow all this and we'll see what happens. It's like, well, but I, do I, for example, first as a woman, do I want to be in the hands of these very macho guys First, you know, like, do I want to be like, like, do I want them calling the shots because they have much more power, right? You are like people also disregard the huge power, especially economical, that, um, the the oligarchy has in Latin America, right? Like, and it's not only Mexico, but like every Latin American country like has, you know, the oligarchy and they are very powerful. They also call the shots a lot of the times, you know, like, so it's just like, um, I think a uh, few people fail to realize like the complexities is like, like when they mean socialist utopia, I think they, they, they mean it in a very like in in a vacuum of social relations, power relations that they don't know, they don't understand. And that I think if you leave, if you don't live in the region, it's very difficult that you're going to understand them. As you mentioned, Victor, like there's this mentality Uh, There is also very present in Mexico, but basically like the mentalities, sometimes people teach their kids, which is very like, it's very present as kind of like, like, it's like a social value almost, I think, or I don't know how to call it. It's just a, a cultural thing. People will tell you like, fuck them first before they fuck you over right and there's something that you will like hear parents telling their kids and like it's like a like it's, it's pass it's it's passing it over right like that that's the the value you're supposed to live by right like no like like yes there might be solidarity, but it's like a very like a very tentative solidarity like at this one, this is very interesting to me. Kind of in a, if when looking anthropologically into Canadian society because a lot of people like in Mexico tell me oh but like like I don't know white people can be like just civil not that friendly and to a certain extent I will agree but what I've noticed is that people are mostly respectful and they will just remain like coldly respectful and 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 I feel that in Latin America, Mexico specifically, like people will be overly friendly, but the minute they can screw you over, they will at some point if they <laughs> will advance them and they will benefit them not that a canadian will not do that but i feel that the canadian will pass as your friend we'll tell
4: you sorry if we did it yeah but i think that's
3: bro <laughs> i think they will, will they will never try to be your friend they will just remain this in this distance right it's not like this backstabbing that you will definitely feel like and not know in that mexican context because they people first will uh, like pose as your friend so i don't know like maybe i'm just like stupidly over generalizing but i think there is like uh yeah no like and i think this mentality i'm not gonna blame but i think there are many things preventing from like the left operating a change in latin america and it has to do with like ge- geopolitics like international like division of power. It has to do with, as I said, with like the, the social conservatism of the region. And as Victor said, it also has largely to do with the trust in the government, right? The people don't trust the government. So I don't know, this is going back to what I was saying before, like when people say, oh no, we have to decolonize our knowledge, let's ditch this whole idea of like liberal values, like trust is at the center of like the liberal government in someone like Locke. And when this is when I say, but why don't we want this in a country where no one trusts anyone, especially today that there's so much violence because of the cartels and the drug wars and etc." So I don't know, I, 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 I'll guess, this is not to say, oh, you will never understand the region if you don't travel there. But my experience in Canada is that people are will, like, are very willing to make these bold statements because they come from a country. I was just reading these statistics the other day about how Canadian cities rank among the cities, among cities in the world where people are the mo- feel that they are like, among the most trusting environments, like Ottawa ranking at the highest of like trust, like kind of cities that are trustworthy, right? And so when you come in from a context like that, it's very easy to say, oh no, yeah, like like, let's bring now everything. Like, yeah, this can happen. But when you come from a context where like uh, violence is, is so common, like violence against women is so common, even like True language, like people think you can catcall. I have never been catcalling in Canada ever, but like, uh, no, like in Mexico, every fucking day, even if I just go out for like five minutes, it will happen, you know? So I don't think people understand how, like,
4: I just want to interject on something shocking that you said, are you saying that there are like Marxists who don't give a shit about feminism or even anti-feminist? Like that's just shocking to me. I would never believe that there could be such a thing. And I'm actually disgusted to hear you say that.
3: <laughs> they are I'll, everywhere. I'll, uh, they are just so common in Latin America. I think they are I, I
2: also was going to say, you know, I think it could be easy for people to hear what you just said as like, you know, um, Canadians, leftists, stop complaining. You have it so good here. And like, obviously that's not what you're saying. Uh, you know, like, like, it's just like, I think, uh, but, but I think, I think that sometimes there can be a fear on the left. You're actually raising something that I think is, is I've noticed it's kind of interesting that there's like, it's like in order, there's like this weird, like psychological complex in leftists where like, they feel like they need to remain attached to like how bad everything is. Otherwise they, they feel like their mobilization is not going to be possible. So it's like, we have to frame things as negatively as possible and not acknowledge any good things. Otherwise the conservatives might win or um it'll like lose steam. And I think like to me it's like you have to in order to think and strategize about like what is actually gonna be the best path forward to make things better. Um, I think you have to acknowledge like what are the things we want to hang on to and what are the things we want to let go of. And I think that one of the things we want to hang on to is basically like a culture of trust uh in institutions and institutions that basically function and like a rule of law that basically functions. Like and to talk about how actually that's a good thing to have that. It's like a maybe a necessary um foundation. To build on and and like so you know yeah that's what i would say about that all right we've been
0: going for a long time so why don't we wrap on this uh mirian you've been in canada for a year and a half now if you could correct the most annoying misconception that your classmates or people like us have about uh latin america what do you think that would be
3: i think there's still a lot of uh, I'm gonna, i don't want to call it like orientalism because of course like i don't know latin america operates on that like limit of being western but i think there's there's still a lot of like romanticization of what the region is i think like uh, and it's somehow upsetting because we are south of you, right? Like, like when sometimes I tell people that like some, I hate it. I hate it when people use North America and they mean the US and Canada. It's so annoying. It's like, there's a whole fucking treaty, sorry, NAFTA that was then renegotiate, right? North America is Mexico too, right? But of course, they cut us geographically because it's like, no, North America means white, right? And I I think it's it speaks of this very insular quality of of Anglo white Anglo Canada and the U.S. Like the how they wanna be insulated from the rest of a country that they see as an opportunity in terms of resources, but also as a problem in terms of the people, right? I I think, uh, and not all people are the same, I I found also like people genuinely interested in the problems of the region, but I think there is this very, i don't know i think people use latin america at least my experience among uh, theorists and academics is that the the you know in the way that best suits their interests so when we have to be radical they highlight like oh the uh, the zapatistas and you know the guerrillas and this and that but then when it's about like oh look at what corruption do, does right or look at these like on it, I don't know, like people, right? And like I don't know. I think there's this very ambivalent position, um, and I honestly don't know the explanation for it. Uh, I'll say that it's. I do agree that it's a very combative region. Like most of my leftist sympathies were like fueled by la- Latin American leftism. Like, uh, like for sure right like uh, i don't think that there's any lie in that but i think like where like a lot of the left today i feel in latin america is looking like after the 20th century experience of trying to overthrow the government today they've recognized that probably the best way to go is by not overthrowing the government by reforming and changing the government right like like reform and i feel that some people maybe at least in in canada are ignorant to that that that, that, like this leftism is no longer not all of it uh, there are people, of course, more radical. But even the radical feminists in my country—they say they are radical, but it's like, oh, but we're asking the state. It's so funny. Like I find them very funny that in that way, right? It's like, oh no, we're radical, but then they want ju- the justice of the state. It's like, well, if you were truly radical, you were you were to ask, at least in my point of view, from a justice that is not the state. I don't know the state justice, but uh, but whatever. And it's also to. I think when they ignore these things, they kind of also like, they don't help their own cause. I feel that they look at like, oh, look at this like radical leftist in Latin America. But I think maybe it can like like, knowing more about how actually the left works and the history of the left, as you were saying with the documentary, I think uh, can, uh, can help like what some of the people are trying to achieve here that would be my my thing is like stop just romanticizing and i actually try to learn about it which maybe that's where um like i don't know like the video comes in and i i was not saying that a white person cannot make a video about latin america at all just to go back to my previous question it was just about like i think um because in latin america is very well like this things have been documented talk about right but i think um it's not the case in like maybe canada and the u.s right so i think as you were saying this deserves more of like a Educational tool, and I can see the value in that because I've seen a lot of ignorance among my classmates, right? And they are at a PhD level, and they just like generalize in a way and in ways that they don't understand, which is probably the same that I do about Canada, right? There's so much that I still need to learn, um, but then I don't know. Go, I don't go out and saying, well, I have the truth about what leftism in Canada has to do, right? Whereas they do hold the truth about what the left should do everywhere. At every point, right? So,
4: Tim Hortons, Snow, Molson—all you need is like one sense game and get pissed off at the Toronto Maple Leafs losing and be Canadian and like and by pretty much any proxy. I want to say I agree with what you're saying, though. Actually, the thing that annoys me most about tankies in North America is getting involved in long, stupid debates. You said again, North America. Oh, sorry. You mean? Oh, wow. All right. West, the thing that you're one of them thing that annoys me most about Western tankies are getting involved in long, stupid Twitter debates about autocratic or authoritarian leftist regimes in Latin America and trying to defend them. And it always pisses me off because I'm like, it's never going to be a good look. Like there's no way of painting some of these things to give off a good impression. If you want to point to a good administration, point to Lula, point to Morales, you know, pre 2015, I'd say. Uh, point to some of the great stuff that's being done by the Zapatistas, who I do think actually are a successfully revolutionary movement in Mexico. Don't get involved in fucking arguing with people about Venezuela. Don't be sitting there saying, well, if only Cuba wasn't blockaded, they wouldn't have to torture so many people. It's just a dumb look. Don't do it. All right. So the documentary comes out on the
0: 18th. It's already out, but you got to pay for it. But after the 18th, you don't.
1: You know, Milton Friedman won the uh, Nobel Prize for economics in 1976. Oh, God. Uh, soon after this, uh, he, he here's a part of his speech. As some of you may know, uh, my monetary studies have led me to the conclusion that central banks could profitably be replaced by computers geared to provide a steady rate of growth in the quantity of money. So he, he certainly learned something from his uh, stint in uh, huh. reforming Chile for the elites and Trying to create wealth for the uh, top twenty percent. What
2: I want to know is, what did those buttons on those chairs in the picture of the command room do?
1: Those summon um, glasses of whiskey.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's like triangle, there's like triangular buttons and like and like a hex and like a pentagonal button, and they're just like, is that's just does that do anything? Is I think like- they control
1: they- the uh, the screens on the walls and things like that. They bring up different slides, and they have little and and also the whiskey button.
4: The most crucial of them all. All
0: right. Well, why don't we wrap it there? Mirian Trejo, thanks so much for uh, joining us and the rest of you. Yep. That
2: was, that was good, <laughs>
0: but long.
1: All right. See you later, guys. Take care. There were large demonstrations against me at the Nobel ceremonies in Stockholm. I remember seeing the same faces in the crowd in a talk in Chicago and a talk in Santiago. And there was no doubt that they were a concerted effort to tar and feather me. Fucking Milton Freeman, eh? What a fucking asshole. Yeah, he got canceled at the Nobel Prize ceremony. Still won it. Still a fucking asshole who ruined Chile at least. But yeah, fuck that guy. Hyatt, he loved Hayek and all that. Oh my god, what a douchebag.